0: Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 9th, 2014. This is episode 1480 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today. Uh, We are going to talk about the public education system. Yep, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how we might create a better system, and how the free market system uh, applied to education might work better. I am not actually talking about the abolition of public education, though I I do believe that would be the result of a free market education system over time. I'm not even really going to bash the education system today, I'm just going to talk about a better alternative and respond to the common objections people have when you say, let's remove compulsory education, let's remove the state mandate from education, let's remove the state monopoly on education, not even, let's remove the state from education. If the state wants to provide education, they can do so if people want to go get that state education. And I have a whole plan that I'll lay out today for how that might actually work, and whatever... Objection you have. Give me a chance. I'll probably address it today. And if I don't, I'd love to hear your objection. Well thought out and logical. Not angry and gnashing of teeth and wailing and more on that in a bit. Before I do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. You'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical. They're called Sawtooth because they're nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran run, veteran operated, and they've got it all. Everything tactical you can think of. From SOE tactical gear to Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, and everything in between, you'll find it at SawTac.com. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Bulk ammo will have your ammo in your hands so fast you will not believe that it came through the mail. That's my commitment to you. That's how badass bulk ammo is. Your neck will snap. Wait, I just ordered, it's at my door, really? That's how it is with BulkAmmo.com. Check them out. All the common calibers you can think of. Bulk ammo with bulk rate pricing. When I need to buy a lot of ammo and I want it fast, I get it from BulkAmmo.com. You should too. Give them a try and you'll see why. Remember that Sawtooth Tactical, BulkAmmo.com and many of our sponsors do discounts for the Members Support Brigade. You can learn about the more, more about the Members Support Brigade by going to the SurvivalPodcast.com, clicking on Members or the Members Support Brigade banner. If you join, you'll support my show. At a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. So, when you get done, if you think this is worth two dimes, consider joining. And if you're buying stuff in the self sufficiency, self reliance world, and if you like the type of content that I put out, you'll get more content that's not available anywhere but in the MSB. You'll get free ebooks that, if you bought them separately, would cost you over 200 bucks. You'll get discounts on things that you're already buying. And if you use those discounts, your membership will pay for itself that's the type of value that I provide with the MSB. Check it out today at the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Next up, it is Tuesday. That means we have Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week we take one day to learn about a plant that we don't know about already that we can use in growing stuff that's edible in our landscapes. Today's plant of the week is the Redskin peach. It's adaptable, adaptable from zone 5b to 9, so it's widely adaptable peach. This is an offshoot of the old-time Alberta peach. Excellent, qual- excellent quality, all-purpose yellow freestone. That means that when you eat it or remove it from the pit, that it comes clean from the pit. That's what freestone means. It's frost-hardy, disease-resistant, and very sweet. It does not require a pollinator, so it's self-fertile, and ripens early to mid-July. So it's a relatively early-ish peach, mid-season, I guess you'd say. This is uh, Bob Wells' uh, personal favorite when it comes to peaches. You can find this plant more at Bob Wells Nursery. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in anything edible. Fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. You can find them all at BobWellsNursery.com. Remember, they're in Lindale, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you, know, you can go out there and pick your stuff up. They ship all over the country. They are my nursery of choice at this point. And if you're an MSB member, you get 10% off at BobWellsNursery.com. So check them out today. Next up, let us look at the year that was the episode 1480. I have three for you. Alex shrugged his back from his travels, and he has today three for us to pick from The Fortification of Rhodes and the Martyrs of Ontaranto, The Great Stand of the Ogra River, and Frost is Born, but Will He Die? I, or Faust is Born, but Will He Die. Uh, I'm going to read The Great Stand on the Old Ogra River, but the, the other two are really worth reading at tspwiki.com. Ivan the Young has been named the Grand Prince of Moscow by his father Ivan III, the Grand Prince of Rus. His father believes in giving his son real responsibility so the people can get comfortable with him as a ruler. As the Mongol Golden Horde comes looking for a tribute from Moscow, Ivan the Young goes out to meet them with several regiments. The Mongols refuse to engage, so it becomes a standoff at the Ogre River. Meanwhile, Ivan III presumes the other princes to send, uh, pressures the other princes to send reinforcements. As the army builds the Mongols back off, this marks the final break of a Mongol domination and begins Russia's expansion from the Volga-Oka River region westward. By next year, the Mongol Golden Horn will break apart after the death of their leader, Ahmed Khan. Uh, my take by Alex Shrugged: Ivan the Young will die young. His father, Ivan III, will become one of the longest living Russian rulers. He was aggressive, dominating his brothers and eventually gathering all their lands under the rule of the Tsar, as he styled himself. The breakup of the Golden Horde will free Russia eventually to dominate Crimea and take land away from Lithuania, which at this time covers a very large region. Um, There's a couple things here that strike me, bringing him to modern day. Number one, so this guy got made basically the prince of a region. So if we looked at his dad, right... The, the Prince of Rus, is more like a king because it's a very big kingdom. And one of his sub-kingdoms he handed out to him would be like the, the president naming someone a governor of a state, of a region, right? So the governor of... So if the president of the United States named someone governor of Texas. And then the United States was being threatened and the governor of Texas decided something needed to be done, a, a high-level ruler, a royal family member. And the troops went out to engage the enemy Instead of sitting on his ass in safety, he went out and did it with him. Right or wrong, at this time, if you were a ruler and you wanted your army to fight, you better have your ass out there with them or they had no respect for you. And how many fewer wars might there be if the people in charge today that easily command men to kill in their name from a distance had to be in the middle of the fight? The next thing is, I have always said the most... Beneficial wars are the ones we do not fight. In this instance, the fact that the war at the Ugra River was never fought was highly beneficial. It probably let the Golden Horde, who then fell apart, be far better off in their falling apart than if they had fought that war. And it definitely was better for Russia, or Rus at the time, not to have to fight that war. If we look at one of the most beneficial wars... Of modern times, it would have been the Cold War to the Soviet Union and the United States, and it was because we never fought it. Just saying. Something to think about. With that, let us venture into the main topic of today's show. I want to tell you what what caused today's show. Okay? So yesterday, I first of all, I got some really good comments from you guys about yesterday's show, and thank you everybody that gave me a good comment. I did not feel good about yesterday's show. Yesterday was a tough day to even do a show. Yesterday I had to go back into soldier thinking and say, this is your mission. And I thought, at one point, today's show is not going to be very good. It would be better that I don't do it. And then I thought it would be worse that it not be done at all. And it was worth pushing through. So I did my best for you yesterday. I actually took out about 30 minutes of content from yesterday's show and redid it because it was I did not feel good enough. So those of you that said it was a good show, thank you. But yesterday, I once again dared to touch the sacred cow of public education and stated that if we were to remove the state's monopoly and control of education, I didn't even say no state education whatsoever. I just said basically the state can offer education to people that want to partake in a state-level education, but it cannot compel you to do so, and it cannot tell you how to educate your child. Oh, my goodness. I got like one sort of kind of negative comment on the blog. But see, what you guys see on the blog is not the totality of what I get. I got uh, just a horrendous onslaught of emails from people talking about how the world would end. And people like me are in league with the Koch brothers and stuff like that. And I just want to destroy the opportunity for... Like, how do you people even listen to my show that comment like this? And you have to understand, too. Like, when you see the blog comments, if they're just like trolling, hateful... You know, abusive comments, you don't see them, but I do. I just don't allow it. I'm sorry. I don't. You can tell me I think you're wrong. Fine. You can tell me here's the reasons I think you're wrong. Fine. You can even tell me I'm an idiot. That's fine. You start cursing me out. You start cursing out other members of the audience, and you start just ranning off with some kind of lunatic fringe-type attitude, and you can go find somewhere else to exercise your free speech. We'll talk a little bit about what free speech is today, too, by the way. But, so I put that, and I get this cramful inbox of people that said I was bashing teachers. But you know what the truth is? I didn't use the word teacher yesterday. I did not say the word teacher yesterday, and yet I got accused of bashing, bashing teachers because I insisted that it might be better that we not have the government control the educational system. That has nothing to do with teachers. And I'm going to promise you right up front today, there will be zero teacher bashing in this show today. Well, zero teacher bashing, as in a wholesale group. Anyway, I might say some things that some people might take as teacher bashing in one little segment that I have planned uh, about certain teachers in certain situations, and that would be like if I say this cop that choked this guy needs to be fired, then I'm saying all cops should be fired. It would be that stupid, so please don't do it. Okay, but let's talk about why we have why to have this reaction, and and it's it's not from stupid people. It's not from flaming liberal status. I don't think there's a lot of flaming liberal status that listen to my show. I think there's quite a few for some odd reason, maybe due to the permaculture stuff on my Facebook page, but I don't think there's listeners that are flaming liberal status to this show. And if they are, I don't think they last very long. There might be a handful, but uh, those are people that I guess are um, verbal masochists. They just like to hear what they hate. But I I don't think they're anywhere near uh, a significant segment. And so you have logical, rational, intelligent people that are concerned with personal liberty that get upset when you say, we got to get rid of the public education system as a stance. Why? Well, the truth is they don't even know why they believe that it's necessary. They just believe that it's necessary. It's the same illogical and violent response that people have to something like, so-and-so burned an American flag you know how much i care about a person burning an american flag as long as it's their flag that they paid for with their money and they're not using it to burn down a building i don't care at all it's a piece of material that belongs to them and if they want to burn it they can burn it it doesn't make them a protester it makes them an asshole that's 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 for you know sure they're doing it only to elicit a reaction from you but that's why i have no reaction uh, it's yours i don't care do what you want to with it but the flag is sacred no The flag is a symbol of something sacred. In and of itself is nothing but a piece of material. And public education is much the same way. People defend it with a a violent response, with any logical response, without even knowing why. Um, And here's, here's why. People would tell you school is important and education is priceless. Every child has a fundamental right to an education. I mean, everybody knows that, right? There are both truths and inaccuracies in those statements. And when combined, they create what we call a logical fallacy. Okay, So to even have this conversation, we have to start defining words so that people even understand where we're going with it. We have to have a higher level conversation than mudslinging. We have to have a higher level conversation than the typical my side versus your side. We have to actually step out of the debate and examine the issue as an outsider. So we have to take a look at things like logical fallacies. A logical fallacy is an unsubstantiated assertion. And it's often delivered with conviction that makes them sound as though they're proven facts. And this is often done by taking true facts and combining them with a total fabrication or unsubstantiated conclusions based on some of the actual facts. It's often done with emotion, right? So if I say something like Every child has a right to an education. And I can make you see a poor little child in dirty clothes that doesn't even know how to read because of evil corporations. I can make you feel that that's true. That doesn't mean that it is true. It just means I've made you feel that way. And I've delivered it with such conviction that it sounds true and it must be true and therefore you accept it. Let's start dissecting some of the words that I use there. In this case, school is important. Okay, That in of itself is a fallacy. It's just not true. Education is important. But school is simply a form of education. School is not required for education to even occur. And if we take school is important and state it as a fact, we are ignoring the underlying reality. What's actually important is a person, whether they're a child or adult, it matters not, learning so that they can, they can fulfill their potential if that's what they want for themselves or that's what you want for your children. They are, after all, your children, not the state's children, though the state may differ with you about that. Okay, So that's just, see, that, that is what you would call, it sounds true because it's based on a fundamental reality. Education is important, but school is not education and education is not school. There are very intelligent people who have never been to school. And there's pretty big morons who have diplomas or even degrees. They are not the same. The next one would be every child has a right to an education. To, to, to even discuss that, we have to understand what a right is. We have to drill down to the word in the context of the claim. If we look up right in the dictionary, we'll find all kinds of definitions such as being correct. But the one that applies here is defined as such a moral or legal entitlement to have or obtain something or to act in a certain way. This means that there is a, when we say a right to an education, a moral and legal obligation to provide everyone with an education. Is that actually the case? I don't believe it is, not in the way that we're led to believe here with this anyway. This also admits a critical reality, that every right comes with corresponding responsibilities. So in other words, I do believe that I have a right to own a gun, and that right is constitutionally protected as part of my right of self-defense in the Constitution of the United States, but my right to own a gun comes with a responsibility not to shoot somebody with it, unless it's defense of life, property, uh, And that's it, right? It also comes with a responsibility that it, just because I have a right to own a gun doesn't absolve me of my responsibility to make sure that that weapon is kept safe. In other words, if I load it up with a bunch of ammo, get it ready to go, chamber around, safety off, ready to rock and roll, and set it on the monkey bars at a playground where children play, that that's not part of my right. My responsibility is about being responsible and safe with that weapon. okay? And those two come concurrently. We can look at other things that are a little bit more universal because some people don't believe in the right to own a gun. Fine. Most people would believe in the right to free speech. Well, that also comes with responsibilities. One would be not to, say, incite violence. So if I use the Survival Podcast and the reach that I have to call for violence... And people respond to it. I can be held accountable for that. I can't claim free speech. If what I did actually had the intent. And the intent had the clear probability of success. So if I called for the burning of a building and that happened, I can be held culpable for at least some of the responsibility there. I can't hide behind free speech. I can't walk into a crowded theater, in the old analogy, that's pretty simple to understand, and start screaming, fire, 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 and cause a panic, and people get trampled and run over when there was no fire, and say, well, it was my free speech. Moreover, the state isn't responsible to provide you with a venue for your free speech, nor to force people to listen to you only to ensure that your rights are not trampled on, nor are they permitted to impede them. And this brings us to another fallacy, the fallacy of omission, which is er errors occur because the logistician leaves out necessary material in an argument or misdirects others from missing information. So what that means is when we say every child has a right to an education and therefore it must be provided by the state, we are omitting all of these other factors. The the education comes with a responsibility. If you want an education from me, and I agree to teach you, and and we come into a contract in a private organization where I say, learning at my school costs $50 a week. And we sign a contract, and I agree, I am now obligated to teach you. But you are also, in order to have that entitlement, which you've purchased now, delivered, required to learn, and to do the things that are necessary in my school. And you're not entitled to a refund if I give you the teaching and you refuse to use it. There's no right to education. What is is a right to access to an education? And the state is not to be here to provide rights. That was never the intention of our form of government, which is a democratically elected republic where minority rights are protected above majority will, okay? That was It was never the case that the state was to give you your rights. It was to protect and defend them. And what that means is the state, one in itself, cannot impede your right. So the right to free speech, the state is not supposed to pass a law that says, you can't say that. Well, of course I can say that. If I'm not infringing on the rights of another, my right is not to be infringed upon by anyone else or the state. Or that if you impede my rights, the state is supposed to protect my rights above your desires. Okay? So if we apply that to a right to an education, which by the way, is not constitutionally protected, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because something's not in the Constitution doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But the government is not even charged directly with that right. But if we are to look at that and assume that is a right, a child has a right to an education. And I don't like the word child. I think that is playing to the emotions. I think human beings have a right to an education. Okay? of a right to an education. The purpose of the state in this equation, if the state is to exist at all, is to sure that your right to that education is not impeded, not to provide it to you. Which means if I try to go educate myself and somebody prevents that, that is where the state is to access uh, enter with intercession on my behalf. It's very simple. And no other right that's specifically cited in the Constitution anyway, is taken to mean that the state is to give it to you only to allow access. So I have a right not to incriminate myself, right? About the only place I can think of where uh, the state is actually beholden to provide for me is if you cannot afford legal representation there to provide it to you. That's about the only one where it's actually cited. Like If you can't do this for yourself, it must be given on to you. Okay, and I only need legal representation if the state is making an accusation against me of some sort or wishes to compel me to speak. And I always have the right not to speak. But the state does not have the obligation to, when I start speaking, to say, you know, since you have the right to shut up, let me put my hand over your mouth. It's just how it is. It's not about what you're provided with. The, The reality is there are hundreds of named fallacies. And almost all of them, at one point or another, could be applied to most things we hold sacred, such as public education. Today I want to examine what a true free market education system might look like. Once we do, I ask you to use logic and reason to determine for yourself, not if such a system would be perfect, only would it be better than what we already have. Every system is flawed. This doesn't mean... A system with flaws can't be better than a system with even greater flaws. So if you say, well, we can't do that because a private education system or a free market education system has a list of flaws, and therefore it won't work, or therefore it's worse, and you admit the fact that our underlying system, a state-imposed, compulsory, monopolistic education system, has greater flaws, is actually another type of fallacy. I wonder, can anybody tell me what that fallacy is? What is the proper name of the fallacy that, in first, since one system is flawed, it can't be it can't be better than another system, which is also flawed, perhaps even greater. Still, a challenge for you today. Anyway, let's just start out with: Is every t- child entitled to a good education? I don't believe so. I believe that students are entitled to the education that they pursue and engage in. They are not in, you are not entitled to anything, honestly, as far as I'm concerned, as far as that which you will not do for yourself. You know, if you want air, you're, you're entitled to air, but you must breathe for yourself, if we want to go that basic. And the next question would be then. Well, does the current system even provide a good education for every child? Even if we, we, we were to say, yes, I believe every child is entitled to a good education. Does the system we have provide a good education to every child? And the answer I think you would say is no. No matter what we decide is the, the level of good, I can show you segments of society that are below that level. Not just in performance, but in delivery. You can't tell me that if I take you to a a, a really well-run school and I take you to one of the lower-performing schools, that the education being delivered and the quality of the teachers and the quality of the material and the quality of the learning environment is equal. It is only the students who are performing worse. And it's the parents of the students whose fault it is. That, That if I were to take all the teachers from the one school, and teleport them to the other and vice versa and all the assets and all the resources they had and the students remain the same that the quality of the education wouldn't go up for one segment and down for the other. Because if you told me that, you would be, you'd be lying through your teeth and you would know it. There's a reason people pay more money to get into what they call a good school district in, in that they'll buy a more expensive house and pay higher taxes. Because in essence, it is a, 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 a tiered education system and better things are available to students who live in certain areas whose parents are charged more for their education through a backdoor we call taxation. So not every, not every student gets a good education today. So even if they're all entitled to it, the current system is not meeting the obligation. So when we're looking for something better we're only looking for something that can do it better, not necessarily meet the full obligation. So if the current obligation were being met at 70 percent right? E- even if it was a full-on obligation by society, if another system could meet it at 80 percent, that better system would be more useful and should be implemented if we're charged with it. If we're charged with the obligation. The current system, the best we can do is 70%. This other system would give us 80 85%. It still has flaws. It's still better. So that's how we should, ju- we should judge. What should we do next from a standpoint of education? The next question is, whose kids are they? Do, do, do your children belong to the United States of America? Or do they belong to you? Who is who is actually morally and legally responsible for their health, safety, and welfare? The state or you? The state is actually charged with protecting their health, safety, and welfare. You are charged with seeing to it. The state is only to intervene when that health, safety, or welfare is infringed upon. By the malicious actions of another or the incompetent actions of another. I mean, if someone's too stupid to know how to feed a baby and the state steps in and says, yeah, we're going to make sure this baby gets fed, I I don't have a problem with that. But when the state steps in and says, we don't like what you're feeding your child. We don't like what you're teaching your child. We don't like how you're teaching your child. So we're going to take them away. Now I have a problem with it. Unless there's malice or injury, there's no crime. That's my child, not yours, not the state of Texas where I live, not the state of New York or California or Florida where you live. That's my child. And, and 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 legally, under common law, that is the case. The state today is trying to reverse that and actually assert that the state has greater rights to determine what goes into your child's body and brain than you do as parents. We need a reverse course on that right now. And the school system is the front line of that battle. This has nothing to do with teachers. This is to do with a system run by and mandated in a compulsory requirement by the state. It has zero to do with teachers. Nothing. It doesn't mean the teachers aren't agents of the delivery system, because they are, but it's how they're taught how they're trained, how they're evaluated, how they're employed, how their standards are set. They are no more responsible for it than any other profession in any other similar situation. The tax collector, the auditor from the IRS, is not your enemy. He is the agent of your enemy. He is the gun of the enforcer. The law enforcement officer that arrests somebody for illegal behavior that shouldn't be illegal is not the problem. The law and the state's ability to enforce a law that is immoral is the problem. The teacher is not the problem in public education. The system is the teacher is the agent of the state. Now, teachers, I want you to think about that. It's probably a word you've never heard yourself called before, but I'd like you to give me a logical argument to the fact that it's not true. Teachers are agents of the state. Of course you are. What you're to teach, how you're to teach, how long you're to teach, the standards by which you are to grade by, the content that you are to deliver, and every single thing that you do is mandated to you from a state standards board. Therefore, you are the state's agent. That might change the way you look at your profession forever all by itself. And that's why we'll get into some other things here in in a minute like why teachers aren't to blame simply because they're not when when a a, a criminal goes out points a gun in somebody's face demands their money and whether they comply or not shoots them it is not the gun that committed the crime it is the guy that pulled the trigger in a government bureaucracy that's been sold as legitimate to people to such a point where the majority of people believe it to be legitimate, those who work within the bureaucracy are not the problem. The, the state apparatus itself is the problem. And this is why teachers can't fix the system, and why many wouldn't even if they could. This is back to my old airplane analogy. If you have a pilot flying a plane from New York to Los Angeles... And with anything other than a gun pointed to his head, you go up into the cockpit and say, "I want you to fly this plane to Florida." He just say, "I can't do it." You can say, "Listen, man, Florida's a lot better of a place than California. All of the people on this plane would be better off. In fact, I've taken a vote, and we have a hundred percent consensus." Of every single passenger on this plane, they've changed their mind. They want you to fly them to Fort Myers versus Los Angeles. Everybody's okay with it. Nobody's going to complain. And if it was true, the pilot would still say, I cannot do this for you. There are requirements. There are, uh, what do you call it, air, air, airspace requirements, uh, routes. That's what I'm looking for. There's routes there's timings, routings, there's airport landing arrangements, there's things like that. We can't do this. Now, if you hijack the plane, you might end up in Florida, you might not. But in in the regular world, that plane that took off in New York and is headed to Los Angeles is going to freaking Los Angeles. It's landing in Los Angeles and unless something major interrupts it. And even if that happens, the next plane's going to Los Angeles. Now, if we take this further, this analogy further, and I say, I want you to go to Florida, and the pilot says, like, Dude, I will go to Florida. I don't care what the FAA says. When I show up, they'll let me land. You're right. We're going to Florida. That could happen. It's not likely to happen, and eh, there's a lot of people in a lot of trouble if it does, okay? But it could happen. But if you say this to a pilot, what I want you to do is I want you to fly the plane out over the ocean And I want you to go under the ocean like a submarine, fly around down there for a while so we can all look at whales. Then I want you to come up out of the water, point the plane 90 degrees up, break the atmosphere of the planet, fly around the world so we can see what our planet looks like from space, and then land in Los Angeles like they wanted you to anyway. About the time you were being injected with some sort of a drug to calm you to hell down because you're nuts... The pilot might might bother to explain to you, this is an airplane. It is not a submarine. It is not a spacecraft. It doesn't do those things. And now, even if you had a gun at the pilot's head, demanding that he comply with you, and you were willing to shoot him and he knew it, there's actually no way he can comply with what you're asking for. In many ways, that is the situation our teachers are in. They know the curriculum is flawed. They know the methodology is flawed. They know that they could do better if they were just given 30 children and said, you run things your way, but they can't. And many of them would not fix it if they could. Because many of our teachers like the current system the way that it is. It's pretty cut and dry. They know what their their deal is. They know what their responsibility is. And the longer they've taught and the closer they are to retirement, the less motivated they are to rock the boat. But in the end, I'll defend even those teachers' actions of staying the course because they know very well if they rock the boat long enough, the only thing that's going to change is they might get tossed out of it. And that's reality. So teachers cannot fix the current system the way that it's built. And many wouldn't even if they could. Now, the (laughs) problem then lies when you say, like, what I want to do is get rid of compulsory education, get the state out of the the mandate component of education. I want the state... To, I, 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 here's, I don't want the state to do this, but I'll make the deal, right? This is the plausible deal that could be implemented over the next 10 years. The state continues, and I don't want to go too deep, because after I answer all these questions, I'm going to actually give my plan, right? But the state could... Continue to provide education so that the children that just can't afford it or whatever could get a state education. Okay? And the state could continue to collect taxes to do that. We'll talk about how and, and how you, you defuse from that over time in here, in here in a minute. And, and they could st- say like, if you want your kid to go, we'll guarantee a seat at a public education institution in your area where the state will pay the teacher and pay for the student's needs and, 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 and everything that they do right now. But you don't have to send them there. We don't tell you anything about what you have to do at all. We don't provide any oversight at all, period, for any private education institution, at all, period. All we do is enforce laws that already exist for everything else. In other words, if you send your student to a a supposed school... And when they get there, they're beaten with sticks about the head. That's abuse, and it's not about the fact that it's wrong for the school to do it. It's abuse of a child, and it's prosecuted as a crime. Okay, all right. And I don't want to go any further than that. But that's what I'm actually—that's my contention—that we would be better off in that system. Here's all the objections. The first one is, who decides if an education is valid? Well, education, whether you like it or not, is a product. It's more accurately a service, but we can judge it as a product. It has a deliverable result. Education is a service delivered to a customer. That's what it is. When you send your kid to kindergarten, you and your child are both customers. You're wanting an education for your child, and your child hopefully wants an education for themselves. They are to be delivered that service, that education, that promise. So... In all walks of life, where government doesn't maintain a monopoly, who decides if the service or the product is valid? The customer does. The market does. See how simple that is? That's the entire answer. Now, I can give you more details. But in essence, the customer and the larger market does. So if I go through an educational program, and right now they exist right i can spend my own money and go to some schools that are not part of the the educational cabal they're completely private and some employers will look at that and go that is awesome i want people like you working for me some are full on uh proto uh, uh, what do you call them analogs to universities or 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 conventional schooling and some are more specialized, individual certification, small number of classes, small number of tests that verify certain performance levels. We'll get into it in a minute. But in the end, it's the market that determines it. The student decides whether it's worth their time and their money and their commitment, and employers and customers of the student decide whether it's worth their time. It doesn't always have to be a job. So, for instance, a martial arts student will pay for his education, with time, money, and commitment. Over time, if he derives enough value from his education, he might open his own school, where he will charge other students. They will look at things like his teaching methodology, the students that he's putting out right now, his philosophy, his venue, and yes, his education and certifications by private groups that are not overseen by government. Very simple. And who decides whether or not this guy's method is valid? The market does. The customers do. The students do. The supporters of the students, whether they're parents or sponsors or what have you, that's who decides. It's that simple. Now, how would we ensure that standards are met or that standards are valid? The answer is we don't. Again, we're back to the market and the customer. You, you're not going to have a school where children learn absolutely nothing, can't read, can't write, can't do math, but You know the, 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 the three basics, And people are going to spend money to send their kids there. Or even put their kids there. The average person does want their child to learn. That's how we got sold on this public monstrosity of education. So we don't need anyone to ensure that the standards are valid as a common set of standards. Now what you would have are individual organizations saying... If you want our seal, if you want our endorsement, our recommendation, these are the things you must do. This is the fee you must pay, and this is the analysis you must undergo to determine whether that would be. Now, does that mean that somebody would come in and sit down in the classroom with a clipboard and rate the school? Or does that mean that a certain percentage of students that graduated a certain level from that school, I'm going to call it grades because the school might call it something totally different, must pass a certain test to a certain level of proficiency to prove that they're learning that. What does it mean? It, 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 you don't get to say. The standards body that develops that curriculum gets to say. One may say, if you want our seal of approval, and the state can do this too, by the way, as long as it's voluntary. You know, the, the school could say, we are approved by the state public board of education of the state of Texas as being valid, or whatever the state wants to say about it, as long as they don't say you have to have it. And another one might say, we have a seal of approval from the North American Educators Society. Well, who are they? They're a group of people they set up. Here's their website. Here's their standards body. Here's what they do. Here's what they require of us. And a school might have no certifications. It might have 10 certifications. They can all come from private entities. This already works, and it's already highly valued. Many of you will have heard the term Sig Sigma Black Belt. This comes from Jack Welsh's Business Principles. And this is a certification that you can acquire. It's not even that expensive. It is challenging. But once you have it, your value to employers goes up. There's a Google Apps for Business Certified Development Specialist. Right? And that's something that Google administers and puts their stamp and says, you are a certified development specialist for Google Google applications. And that has value. Microsoft, you know, Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. I guarantee you, MCSE, after your name, has a much higher value to many employers than BA. Or even, dare I say, MA. In many instances, in many instances, MCSE might be worth more than PhD. But it doesn't come from a vaulted institute of higher learning with government oversight. It might. Colleges can run an MCSE course, but you don't have to be a college to do one. You have to do what Microsoft says that you have to do. I used to have some pretty prestigious letters after my name. One of those sets of letters was... Jack Spierko, RCDD. What's an R-C-D-D? A A registered communications distribution designer, which is overseen by the Bixie Group. <laughs> right? What, what, what the heck is a Bixie? It's yet another an acronym that stands for Building Industry Consulting Service International. And does RCDD mean anything? Depends. If you're in the cabling installation industry, it means a lot. There's jobs where if you want to bid to provide the service the customer requires, that you have at least one RCDD on staff. So I was able to obtain employment because I had RCDD certification. Is it meaningful? Is there a relevant standard? Absolutely. In fact, I no longer can say I am an RCDD. I have been removed from the Hall of Records of the Vaulted Bixie. If you go look me up there now, I'm not there anymore. Why? Because I failed to maintain the continuing education requirements to maintain my certification and therefore I am no longer credentialed as an RCDD, right? So who determines the standard is valid is whoever's paying for the standard, whether that be the employer, the customer, or the customer of the customer who is technically an employer. What about children that can't afford a good education? That's another one. Okay, so to, to get this deal done, I'm willing to leave a public education sector in place. It just cannot be mandatory anymore. So that objection right there, if you believe that the public state solution to education is valid, and it is good enough, and it is a minimum standard that should be maintained as available, then it's there. Okay? I don't even think that that has to be the case. I believe that in the world today, that we can provide an education access point for students for a couple thousand dollars a year per student. At the absolute most, and the numbers should go down over time. Because if I invest in your child by giving them a computer, that computer should last them a, a fairly long period of time. And then the only thing I have to pay for to make sure your child has access to education in this world that we live in today... Honest to God, is an internet access point, and in most places, you can get high-speed internet for fifteen bucks a month. Now, I'm not a student of Common Core math, but I can do that math. That's 180 bucks a year. That's a And if you have multiple children living in your home, that one bit of internet access provides for everybody. I don't care if it's a hundred bucks. hundred bucks for internet access would be twelve hundred dollars a year. And if you have one student, that's twelve hundred bucks a year. There is not a school in America that gets close to providing jack crap for a student at 1200 bucks a year. They'll tell you it can't be done. So, I think that... And that's just one... See, the thing is, as soon... This is what people don't get. As soon as you remove the state, like pulling the cap off of something, just get rid of it. Throw it over there. And go, Anybody wants to use it, can use it. It's still over there, but it's not over here anymore. You find... Thousands of solutions that you never even thought of because the state was interfering with them. But, Jack, if you need to be educated, you can't just have Internet access. I think the average student can learn as much, as much from the Khan Academy right now, as they do from the basic public education system that we consider a minimum standard level threshold. You can even learn Common Core there if you want to, and it's all frickin' free. And how many more places would develop free educational components and programs and find other ways to monetize what they're doing if we got the state out? So the fact that children can't afford it is a non-starter, or that parents can't afford it is a non-starter anyway, but I'm willing to leave the option. You know, we have the public option for healthcare. You can still get private healthcare, but what about having a public option? What if we did it in reverse? Now, I don't want to make the deal going forward into a public option if it's not already there. I think it's a big can of worms. But if we already have not a public option, but a public mandate, and we can scale back the option, the, the mandate to an option, I'll make that deal. So that, that objection just goes away. It just isn't there anymore. Then how can we ensure access to education if, if not the provision of education, how, how can we make sure that kids, that some stupid parent just doesn't prevent their child from uh, obtaining an education? And I would say we could look at children as what they are, small humans that have their own set of rights, and that if their right to an education is infringed upon, that, that then we can intervene and say, you must allow your child to have a right to an education. I don't think we'd have to do it very often. I really don't. And I think the the people that actually prevent their children from getting an education at all do that already anyway under the current system. They simply don't send them to school. And most of them go unmolested. Parents are not persecuted for not sending their kids to school. Parents are persecuted when their kid who was going to school stops going. It's a lot like the tax system in some way. There's people that have never paid a dime in federal tax. And they've never heard a word about it. And they might get away with it for the rest of their lives. It's getting harder and harder. But it's been that way for a long time. And it would be the first time they file taxes that they really come up on the radar. And, you know, you could say, well, you know, employers take it down and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, people that do odd jobs and stuff. There's people that have lived their whole lives. All they've ever done are odd jobs, work for cash, etc. They get by. They live a lower level of existence which, if you don't get an education, you also live a lower level of existence. But nobody really does anything about it. So when you make that argument, you're inferring that's already not the case. Right? It's like saying, well, you know, you can't feed the world with permaculture. With, with perennial farming. Well, you're making the case that right now that conventional agriculture is feeding the world and there's people hungry all over the place. So your assertion is, is a fallacy. It's not true. It's not true because what you're inferring is that the existing system does what you're saying this other system cannot. All right, I I really can't make it any more clear than that. But the way we ensure access is that we leave the public option in place, at least until people don't want it anymore. We give people actual choice. And if you need the state to provide a law for you, you could have a law that says, no child shall be prohibited from engaging in education of some sort, which I think is a big mess and it would cause a big problem. Because then the state starts saying, well, this is what education means. This is our stance. See, you just let it alone. You let it alone. I guarantee you, if there is a parent preventing a child from learning at all, that they are committing other crimes against that child. I guarantee you, you will not find a parent seeing to the welfare of their child in all aspects other than education. Now, you may very well find a parent teaching their child things you think are wrong. Like, they're teaching their child that God created the earth out of dust. And that the story of Adam and Eve is literal and real. That's horrible. Those poor ignorant children will never know the truth. About the fact that the universe was created by happenstance and chance. I don't care what side of that argument you're on. You do not get to decide what someone else teaches their kid about the origin of mankind. It's not your business. And children otherwise educated to things like grammar, rhetoric, and logic that can read will come across these other theories. And they will decide for themselves what they believe. It's not like they'll never know. It's not like they'll be so sheltered that a little kid will grow up and never know that there's anybody out there that believes, instead of pure creationism, that there's also something called intelligent design, and that there's something called basically the the theory of pure evolution, that everything is an accident. There is no God. There is no intelligence. There is no con- that they'll never. This is ridiculous that they'll never hear that. And you know what? Right now, there's people walking around that believe any one of those three things, and it doesn't really affect you now. And the public education system will never make everybody believe one thing, nor should it. The world is to be a world of competing ideas. Those of you that believe in pure creationism and want to teach that to your children, my only problem with you is when you fear them hearing the counter-argument. And I don't worry about it because sooner or later they'll grow up. And if you shelter them 100% from the counter-argument, or just say that everybody that believes that is wrong, the likelihood that they will retain the belief you instilled in them will actually go down not up. People are most comfortable with belief systems that they are allowed to form for themselves. So the people that try to pigeonhole their children into one belief system are self-correcting to their own problem. They will create active rebellion in their children who will go out and seek other ideas. And it doesn't just apply to religion. It applies to everything. I have a family member who has a son. That son was dating a girl a year ahead of him in in, in high school. I don't want to say who or what because I don't want to be too specific to anybody's name or hurt anybody's feelings. But that girl had parents who were uber-restrictive. You couldn't go anywhere in a car without knowing, and you had to call and check in, and you, I mean, like, when we had a family event, and that girl came to our house, she could only be here for two hours, at which time she had to be transported home. Like, ridiculous level of oversight. She went away to college this year, and she went away to college, like when kids go away, five, six, seven hours away, okay? Okay. It took about two weeks for her to tell this, this, this boy that's related to me, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to end our relationship. And I guarantee you, she's not under the thumb of the parent anymore, and she's probably doing a lot of things they feared that she would do, probably far more so than if she had been given liberty and freedom in her own life while she was under their thumb, if they had voluntarily removed the thumb. And the rebellion will only increase now. That's true in all walks of life. So the parents that restrict knowledge or restrict learning will actually increase the rebellion, and a rebellion toward knowledge is fine with me. So I think it's self-correcting. Okay, But the next one is, well, then students with wealthier parents get a better education this way. They already do. It's not an objection to doing something new if it's already the case. Right now, if you make $200,000 a year and and a person that you know makes 50, you probably don't live in the same neighborhood, you probably don't go to the same school district, and there's probably a marked improvement, at least in how we meter success, in the education your child receives and that person with $50,000 receives. The class system in public education has actually created a stratification level where none needs to exist because the kid of the of the mother that's barely making it by on $25,000 a year the kid of the of the of the father that's busting his ass and making a medium income 75 grand a year for the household 100 grand for the household whatever two parent working household and the kid of the of the parents that are making a quarter million dollars a year or more all could be getting the same education if the state didn't tell them where they all had to go to school it is actually the state system that has created the stratification of quality. It has done it in multiple ways. One, it has done it by holding back the most gifted, or creating a little pocket for them to exist in, but basically capping the performance of the top performing schools and barely meeting the performance of the bottom performing schools based on the economics of what's available and and the quality of the student body, and the quality of the parent body that goes along with that student body. And then the oversight of government itself, attempting to make everything level, has created stratification. So by removing the state, we would actually lessen stratification, not increase it. But even if it was the same, it doesn't matter because it already happens. In fact, it is the very fact that public education has so much stratification in it, and has so much limiting components to it that makes the truly wealthy completely remove their children from it and send them to what they consider higher quality private education systems where they have to pay really, really big bucks. So wealthier families already buy better quality education at every level you can think of. And the the the, the fact of the matter is that a child... Going to school in, let's say, Mansfield, Texas, is going to get a better education than a child going to school just 25 miles away in South Dallas. Period. And it is a direct result of income. And it's just the way it is. So it's already true. The next one is, but but children need education like this for social skills, to meet other people of diverse backgrounds and things like that. It's just that that objection is ridiculous. The homeschool children I have met by and large have been far more capable of having in-depth creative conversations with a person of my age, knowledge, and background than most kids out of the public sector. And you're assuming that because people don't go to a certain building of a certain shape and a certain layout with a certain structure and organization that they won't interact with other people. Take a look, there's people everywhere. You throw a rock, you'll probably hit one by accident. Hopefully it's an accident. Okay. And then the other argument is, but every other nation in the modern world provides public education to their students. We would be the only one without state-mandated education. I haven't done enough research to tell you if that's entirely true, but let's just assume that it is. That doesn't mean we should do it too that doesn't mean that we should do it too there's lots of things that at one time every other nation did like impose a caste system or a feudal system on its citizenry right every other modern nation had a monarchy at one time it doesn't mean we should do it too it doesn't mean it's the best that's available just because it's what other people do the next one is but uh, a, 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 a free market system will create an unfair advantage for many people I actually say it would create a fair advantage. If I work harder to earn more money to give better things to my family, and one of the things that I choose to give to my family that's better is the quality of their education. That is my right as an American. as my right as a human being. I work for it. It's mine. It is mine because I earned it. That's first of all. The second of all, you're not going to have a fair system if fair means equality, in education because this is the fact of the matter some people are smarter than other people and some people i dare i say it are stupid you've met stupid people they're not uneducated they're stupid right some people are not capable of learning at what we consider a median level And some people are bored to tears by a median level. Now, I actually believe that every human being, unless there is significant cognitive impairment, has the ability to be brilliant at something, and we need to free them to figure out what that is. Okay? But they're not all going to do math at a, a level that you've determined. No more so than if you said, I believe that every person should be able to run at least four miles consecutively, by the time they're 15 years old, at a speed where they average 7.5 minutes a mile. There's a huge portion of the population, if you set up a system that required them to run, would be able to do that. There are some people that physically would not be able to do so. Just like there are some people that mentally will not be able to adapt to the public education system with its rigorous set of standards saying this is what must happen in this progression in this order. Some people will never be good at higher math and have no reason to be good at higher math because they don't care and never will. Some people can look at mathematical problems before you even explain what they are and see them almost as poetry. It's like a form of code, a form of language. Those people are going to excel at mathematics no matter what you do. And the people that really don't care are not going to care and have ambitions in their life that are so divorced from advanced mathematics will never understand them no matter what you do and will never really give you the effort to try. So stop pushing a string. There's an old saying, you can't push a string. And some smart, clever person figured out, if I wet the string down and I freeze it, I can push it. And my response is, you can only push it for a while. Sooner or later it will thaw out. And it doesn't accomplish anything anyway. And that's what many of the things we're trying to force on our children and force on our, 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 our fellow citizens. Because it doesn't stop when they're no longer children. When they're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old and engaged at the education at the university level or or getting their education late because they failed to get it when they were young. They're adults and young adults and we're still forcing these things on them. To me it's wrong. It's criminal behavior by society. The next is, but we do have to at least make sure that the average person can read, write, and do basic math, right? Okay, again, we're assuming the current system does this. I want to know how many people, if you just walked up to random people on the street and said, I got a question for you on camera, put the camera rate right on them right now, said, what's 27 minus 37? Would go, uh, 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 because they're so divorced from the concept of negative numbers in their daily activity That the concept of negative 10 just doesn't pop in there. I know for you it probably did. But don't tell me there aren't countless Americans that can't do basic mathematics. Or they need to sit down and think for a while, then they can do them again. And some of these people got good grades in algebra. But they really didn't know math. They just got good at doing what they were told for long enough to get through it and then divorce themselves from it. This is pointless. This is what you call a bad investment. Basically, what I'm telling you is every objection that I've ever heard to opening up education to a true free market, unstate mandated system does not hold up. And the results are either the same or better when you analyze how things would actually work. I personally believe we need to abolish the compulsory public education system to solve most of our current problems in the world. If you look at the history in society, and you look at the advancements of government versus the advancements of private industry, even with all the problems we have, there's no doubt that we've had greater advancements by the private sector than the public sector. When you run a department in a public sector, like I did as a very young person in the military running a motor pool, okay, Because I was a mechanic and ended up filling the role of a motor sergeant for a while. And you're basically told at the end of your year, spend all the money in the budget on anything we can buy or we're going to get less money next year. You need to come in at budget. When I ran a, a sales territory in later years, when I came in under budget, I was rewarded. The the two worlds are so conversed from each other. I'm rewarded for performing better in the private sector, and I'm rewarded for performing as expected in the public sector. Not for performing poorly, but performing as expected. When I exceed the performance standards in the way that's not conducive to the bureaucracy, I am punished. Now, we cannot solve the complex problems in our world with that type of thinking. Innovation, change, improvement, exceptionalism, these things must be encouraged, not repressed. The problems in our world are huge. The problems in our nation are huge. We cannot solve them with the type of thinking that created them. pretty smart guy named Einstein said that. I'm paraphrasing him there. Well, we can't. And no logical person would assert that we can. I'll tell you that public education, as it sits today, again, not teachers, this system is largely responsible for the stratification of society and the ability of those in power to control our society. Public education, as it is today, literally teaches compliance and obedience to the state. Teacher or not, argue that against me. I I defy you to. From the time a child first enters the public education system, they're told when to sit, and at a young age, they're told when to take a nap, where to put their pen or their pencil. And when they defy authority, it is swift and immediate in response for a punishment. And the punishment has no possibility of appeal, and it will be carried out until you conform. That is school. Now, I don't care whether you think it's good or bad. You can't argue that that is not the case. It is. And if you take someone at the age of four now, because we have pre-K, it's government-mandated some places now, four years old, we put them into that system. And we encourage parents now to put their kids into preschool, too, okay, where they're also following this regimen. It's still private, but yet it's been handed down, and it's overseen, and it's overseen by government that says this is what you do. Okay. So we put this child into a system like that at four. What do you think you get at 18? A free, independent thinker who challenges authority, asks questions, thinks for themselves, or do you get a person who's been conditioned to obey? So if we are going to solve problems in our society, they are mostly stemming from the fact that human beings simply obey authority. Regardless of whether that authority is just or right, then we have to get out of a system that actually creates and manufactures citizens that think this way. So how would I create this system? Well, if I had my druthers, I would just eliminate public education altogether. I'd just say all taxes that are currently being taken from people to pay for this shall no longer be taken. Everybody has everything back. Go figure it out. Um, I think that would create a lot of turmoil, but it would be relatively fast in repair. And I would even say, you know, we're going to do a, a four-year phase-out, right? Four years, we're going to wean people off of it. You know it's coming. You can't say you didn't know, and, but pull the plug. Like yesterday, I said, I wouldn't pull the plug on 90% of government in one day because I think there would be too many people dead as a result of it, That I though I think that would be a good thing long-term. If the button you offered me to push took government and reduced it by 90% of its size and scope, Over 20 years, I'd push it, but if it was over 20 minutes, I would not. Because I would not want the deaths on my hands. Public education, I think that piece can go a lot faster, but I don't think people are ready for it. One more objection before I go on. Well, if we didn't have public schools for kids to be in, where would they be while their parents are working? This assumes that it's the state's responsibility or the public's responsibility to see to the the, the safety of your children rather than your own. And when you say that, you're actually saying they are the state's children, so don't say that. People did figure out how to do this before the state controlled everything. Just saying. Okay? Let's go back to my system, though. So I don't think elimination of the public education system is palatable to the modern person. So I believe in obsolescence as the model. If we make a better system and we create freedom and liberty for people to use it, eventually sufficient numbers will exit the system to render it obsolete, inept and in the dust of history where it belongs. So that one day somebody's doing a history segment about this thing called public education that no one's ever heard of before. And the way we get there is by making the deal. The deal is the state can see to the availability of education for any child whose parents and child jointly wish for that education to be administered. So if you want to send your kid to Franklin Roosevelt Elementary or whatever the hell they call it where you're at, you can. Just like now. Nothing changes with the ability and the choice to send them there. That is the first thing I want you to understand. Because then all of the objections about how necessary this is are meaningless unless you actually fear that the other side can do a better job. And that's what it all comes down to. Because every objection after that will, will be, but then so many people will leave. That means the other side's doing a better job. Okay? Okay. But then the next, the very next thing. At that point, we have to say that no child can be ke- compelled to go to school ever the end. You cannot mandate education or the form thereof, period. The state cannot find a person. They can't seize children. They can't do jack-diddly-shit solely on the grounds of we demand this child receive an education that we deem fit. You remove the compulsory component. That is all. Everything else will kind of happen on its own after that. It really will. Imagine, most parents initially wouldn't do anything. Right? Now, I would say the parent has recourse if the child doesn't go to school. So if you say, Tommy, you're going to school, and and Tommy says, there's a law that says I don't have to go anymore. No, there's a law that says that I don't have to send you. But I'm choosing to say the parent has recourse. The state does not. If the state shows up at your house and says, Tommy's not in school, and you say, Tommy doesn't go to that school anymore, goodbye, they leave. They should have never showed up in the first place. You're filing a complaint for being interfered with at that point. Because you probably already notified them of that. That would be the only stipulation that once you remove your child from the school, you have to notify them. The, the, Tommy will no longer be attending the public education system. Sincerely, Tommy's dad. Bye-bye. Boom. Once that's done, it's over. It's out. It's done. It's not the state's business. Because Tommy's your son, he's not the son of the state of Texas or the United States of America. He is a citizen of the state of Texas or the United States of America. But he is not their son. They do not exert control over him. At least in this aspect, anymore under my system. Then, yes, the state can continue to offer education but not compel attendance. Then, this is the most important piece. The taxes funding education are to be lowered in an apportioned manner as students exit the system. There's a big word that you don't learn in public education anymore, apportioned. Because if you start learning apportioned, you start asking questions about constitutionality and taxes, and you find out that the income tax is unconstitutional as written. So they don't want you to know what that means. But I would add to it for this policy that is to be lowered in an evenly apportioned manner, just so that the politicians understand. And what this means is that if a student of your school is attracting 10000 tax dollars, we can actually figure out where those $10,000 come from. They don't all come from the same source. Some come from a certain type of property tax, some from certain federal uh, matching funds and other things. And there's different ways that different school boards have chosen to steal money and use it for education, and that's what it is. It's the theft of property that's what property taxes you're you're stealing my money based on my property without my consent but however you've chosen to take it is how you have to give it back is what that would mean so Johnny leaves Franklin Dolan or Roosevelt University and Johnny was getting FDR uh, FDR elementary I'm not sorry university elementary FDR elementary was getting ten thousand dollars for Johnny If $2,000 came out of bucket A, it goes back into bucket A and it's returned to the taxpayer. So the taxpayer source, where that two grand was coming from, no longer is handed that bill. That one tax is reduced in an evenly apportioned manner based on the exodus of the child from the system. The child is no longer a burden on the system, therefore we should no longer have to pay for that child. Not Johnny's dad gets the $2,000. Johnny's dad is part of that bucket and whatever piece he was paying, he gets back. Okay, that's fair. Believe it or not. Okay, and then if eight grand was coming from another bucket, it goes through that bucket back to the source that it was being taken from. And every child that leaves causes the same effect. So that if half the kids leave Franklin Delano uh, University, right, FDR or FDR Elementary, um, then half of the money is gone. You now have to run the school with half the money. Well, I can't do that anymore. It's too big. Okay, you have a couple things you can do. You can combine two schools into one and sell off the assets of the other. You can lease out the classrooms to the multiple private education systems that will be showing up wanting to do your job. You can even have students that attend public education for some things, private education for other things, and offer it in the same building. You'll just have to compete. You have to compete for who wants to take your space, how much they want to pay you. It's called the real world. I know most people in academia know nothing about the real world. This is how business works. Very, very simple. But you cannot compel attendance. And all the all the students you lose, because now it's free competition, you lose the money that goes with them. And the money goes back to the people who were paying the bill. In an evenly apportioned manner. Okay, Very, very simple. Next. Any person or entity may set up any form of education as long as the activities conducted are otherwise legal. Okay? So, no, you can't set up, call it a school, have parents sending your children to that school, and they're being sold as child prostitutes as their education. Okay? That's illegal activity. I'm going to the extreme just to make a point. All right? Now, this doesn't mean that you might not be able to get very, very creative. Let's say that I decided that I am offering an educational opportunity for children to work with me. And I say, I only work with children with a certain proficiency in computer literacy. They have to be at a certain level. They have to be at least 14 years of age. And I don't take any student after the time that they're 18 or 19, whatever age. They say 19. At 19, they have to leave and go do something else. Part of their curriculum is they work within my business, and parents pay me to have them do that. Now, those that work at a higher level, I may discount the tuition, if you want to look at it that way, and that way I'm, in essence, receiving their labor, their work, their effort for free, but I'm providing them an education. Who polices this? The customer, the child doing the learning, and the parent of the child sending the child to me to learn from me. Free Voluntary Association of Human Beings. Now, you might say this is extortionism, but you tell me. You tell me the God's honest truth, knowing me and my reputation and my brand that I've built. If you had two young people sitting in front of you, and you ran a company that did web marketing, one was 22 years old and had gone through the existing public education system and had received a bachelor's degree in business, but they wanted to go into your company and perform as an internet marketer in your company. Okay, You can hire them. The other child is 19. They've just been booted out of my program. They've been in my program since they were 15. They've been there four years. They were homeschooled, privately educated, whatever, but they completed a four-year internship working with me And working in my business and various businesses and doing active internet marketing. Who are you going to hire and who are you going to be willing to pay more? Which means for that individual who had that goal, I can do a better job. Would I do it? I probably would not. I'm probably not cut out for it. But people like me are. Now, you could say, well, that's an unfair advantage. No, it's a It's a fairly earned advantage. You had to qualify to get in to my limited number of seats, pay my fee, do my work, meet your commitment to me so that I would then be obligated to meet my commitment to you. And in return, you got my seal, the Jack Spirico seal, that this individual completed my program. Here's my program. Here's what you can publicly see. Here's things that are proprietary to my business that you cannot see. I do a better job in public education there. A thousand times over. A thousand times over. Now, if that student has a different agenda for their life, if you want to be a doctor, a medical doctor, if you want to be a botanist, okay, if you want to be a chemical engineer, then the existing institutions of higher learning will provide you much better value than I ever could. But that doesn't mean there's not somebody like me in botany or chemical engineering that couldn't do a better job than the private sector, or the public sector does right now. Just saying. But anybody can set up any school they want to, and any parent can send any child to any school they want to, as long as the activities being conducted are otherwise legal. The end. But what about a kid that's going to, Not your it's not your kid. It's not the state's child, it's the parent's child. Okay. The next thing is, any group or entity may set up a standards body, publish its own standards, and issue its own private certification. So, the whole concept of, well, if you went to Jack Spirico's school of hard knocks in internet marketing, and you graduated from that, who gives a shit? Well, on one level, I'm selling my own credibility to my customers. I'm known, you can look at my business, you can see what I've done, here's my list of contacts. And when you graduate, I will open my Rolodex to you. That's one way. These are all people that I know that I have working relationships with that I've worked with over the years that might either need somebody or know somebody that needs somebody that will vouch for the credibility you have because of me. So on one level, the credibility comes from the institution itself and its reputation. That's not fair because some people have a better reputation than others and others have to form their reputation. No, that's, that's the real world. Academia, I'm sorry. That's how it works. Okay? Now, That said, an organization could say, we certify that an individual is proficient in social media marketing. And if you hire this graduate from Jack Spirico's school... We know that based on our requirements and him presenting to us his educational regime and sample testing of his graduates at random sample without him getting to pick and choose who they are, that someone coming out of his school carries with them our certification. And then as a hiring person, I got both Jack Spierko and the Social Media Marketing Agency certified social media marketer level one, right? Or they can say we have a test that you can take, a proctored exam in some way that you take, that we issue you the certification so that my student could obtain that individually. Or a parent could say, does your classwork prepare my child to get this certification, even if I don't personally carry it? I can say yes. They can ask me how. I can demonstrate that. And I can say, here are the last 12 graduates we put out in our last graduating class. We're very small and very selective in who we take and of the 12, nine elected to take the exam, nine passed the exam, you have a reasonable assurance at this point that I meet that standard. And anybody anywhere can set up any standard at all, ever, the end infinity, and the government doesn't get to say shit unless there's a failure of contract obligations or criminal activity. So the only state oversight would be contract revolution and criminal police enforcement. So if you are... Criminally abusing someone, right? The state has a mandate already to step in. If a child comes into my classroom and I punch them in the face and say, that's lesson one. All right. I've committed an act of assault on a minor. Now, it doesn't matter that I'm in a school. If I, if I go into your house, knock on your door, you let me in. I go, do you have any kids? And I go, yeah. And I go, I saw a kid running down the street. I think he was maybe committing a crime. Can I see your kid? You say, yeah, I'll show you my kid. You bring me your kid up and I punch him in the face and go, that was him. Okay. I'm, I'm going to jail too. That's otherwise criminal. Now here's the key. I would, I would make the deal without this, but in my system, contract resolution would be voluntary. In other words, when you came to my school and said, I want Johnny to go to your school of internet marketing. I said, okay, here's how I run things. And you said to me, um, in the event that I feel that you have not met your obligations to my child, what type of recourse do I have? And I would say, we operate under the laws of the state of Texas with our contract obligations, and that's in the contract that you sign when you engage my services. That's voluntary. And we both agree to allow the state of Texas – to to initiate contract resolution through the court system if there's a disagreement on delivery, just like it is now. Or I can say, I use a third-party arbitrator service. This is what they do. This is how they operate. This is how they determine if either side has failed to meet their obligations. Here's their past track record. And I do not use the state of Texas as my contract resolution service at all. You have no recourse through the state. You have to take recourse through here. You know that going in. And it's up to you whether you want to do that or not. Or I can say, and this is already done with contracts, by the way. Here's my contract. I require that we first utilize a third-party arbitrator service. And here's who I work with. Or it can be of your choosing. Or it can be one of these four. Or whatever is spelled out in the contract. Okay? And that if either side feels that the resolution is not sufficient at the end of that private arbitration, then and only then can you proceed with a state solution. We can have any of those. But I think it should be voluntary. I think that should be the case in all business transactions. As long as the contract resolution is civil versus criminal. I think if you've engaged in criminal activity, I am okay depending on how we define criminal activity, but in what most people would agree should be criminal activity with state-level function of criminal law enforcement at this time because I don't think I can sell society ever on coming off of it. But I think this system not only can work, I think it will work over time. I don't think that it will ever work the way that I envisioned it 100%. I don't, I think there's so many things that could be set free and loose on the system that I can't even conceive of, that you can't even conceive of, that some 12 year old will figure out if we let them. Um, so it wouldn't even be the same if I was given the opportunity to make it happen through some sort of mandate. But I don't think that we will see the day. The government will willingly surrender its monopoly on public education. It will have to be seized. But I think what will happen is as more and more and more people discover better options, because now they're coming left and right, that more people will begin to actually just remove their children from public education. They go, here's my other option. And there are states that are not far away from what I'm talking about right now. Texas, if you want to homeschool, buddy, this is the state. You don't have to do anything to homeschool your children here. You don't have... Honest to God, Texas, if people understood the opportunity here, could become what I'm talking about tomorrow. As a homeschool parent... Or a parent pursuing any private education services of your choice in the state, you don't have to do much of anything at all. There are states where, well, your child must submit to an exam or an evaluation once a year, or things like that, or they send inspectors to your house. We don't have any of that here. It's not as free as I would like it to be, but it's damn close to this, except for the tax redistribution thing, right? As, as, as students leave, the you see, and people don't even understand that. But this is going to be the natural progression. And what will begin to happen is parents will start to make choices about where they live based on the regulations around education as much as anything else. There's already parents moving to states like Texas and Florida because they're better places to to privately educate or self-educate your children. They're already making that decision. As that happens more, states like money. States like money. They love money. They love money more than anything else in the world. Money is a means to power for states. And they will do just about anything they can get do to get money. If you think only corporations are greedy, you have not paid attention to government spending. And the direction of government spending and the corresponding direction of government extraction of wealth from its citizenry has gone in one direction. Since George Washington, it's gone in one direction up. Little bitty blip by Eisenhower does not qualify. I'm sorry. Okay? It doesn't. And the transference of debt from public to private and then back to public doesn't make it work either. If you want to look into that, you can. But the reality is the moving average, even if you find these little blips, like the coolest administration, a little bit of spending went down or whatever. No, no, no. The moving average, if you were analyzing stock charts. There'd be one red line going straight up and exponentially hooking toward the end of the graph. And if we if we went out 20 years, that hook for right now would appear to disappear because a bigger hook's going to exist in 20 years. Governments are the greediest entities of any and all out there. Far more greedy than Microsoft. Microsoft wants more money, they must give you something for it. The government wants more money, they just have to figure out how to take it and where to get it from. Now, one way they get it is on when, when state level, when people move to their states, walking to freedom. And if a state figures out, if we do this, more people will come here. Even if the money they're getting in one box goes down, but the totality of the money goes up through things like sales taxes and just the overall economy of the state, they will make that deal. And as states start to figure out, we can attract parents by making it such that they can educate their children as they see fit. They will attract people. Now, who are they going to attract? Are they going to attract the very people that you're worried about keeping a system in place for? Or the people that are going to have what some people will call an unfair advantage? They're going to attract reasonably intelligent, reasonably affluent families who want something better for their children and are willing to figure out how to get it for them. They're going to attract people that work remotely. They're going to attract entrepreneurs. They're going to attract people that own businesses. And they're going to attract people of higher level incomes. All of those things mean more money for the state. Now, at the same time, there is a technological evolution going on that is making the ability to educate your children easier and easier and more effective than ever before. You can teach a child more today with an iPad, than the school system ever could in 1980. No matter what they did, no matter how hard they tried, your child will learn faster, freed up of the confines of a regimented system, and set free to engage the mind, and to allow the mind to direct the pursuit. I don't care if you like it, it's a fact, it's been proven. There's been studies shown where they took computers and set them in a village in in India. This one guy on the TED Talk, he just put it there. He didn't tell them how to use it. He didn't tell them what it was. They didn't know how to read. He came back in six months. They're like, we need a better processor, more RAM. They know more about the computer than most people with a computer on their desk know. Because it was this tool that opened up wonder. And more and more people are getting creative and saying, what can I do? How can I contribute to this system? So my system will happen by being backed in. As parents pull their kids from the educational system. And as less bodies are in the system. And more money per student is spent than ever before. Because initially, the government will keep all the money. They will not return the tax base in an even-apportioned manner based on where it came from as students exit. They will hold on to it. It might move between schools, but the totality will stay there. And more and more people will start looking to these young people coming out of these innovative, creative systems who are doing all the wonderful things in life, who are kicking ass and taking names. And homeschoolers are doing it already, but you ain't seen nothing yet. We start unleashing the mental capacity of our youth. Boy, then you'll see something. We stop banding people like in Harrison Bergeron and holding them all to be equal. And we let the truly exceptional excel And we accept that all are exceptional in certain places. And we let people excel where they actually are exceptional versus where we tell them they need to be exceptional when they're not exceptional at all. We stop telling people that they're special and great and exceptional where they're not and freeing them to figure out for themselves where they are. And the advancement that we will get will be just huge, magnificent advancement. And people aren't as stupid as the government thinks. And while the average person might be the average idiot, there's enough people paying attention and awake to start looking at going, look at that. I want that for my kid. And many adults will start saying, I want that for myself. I'm going to go there and get an education. This, they never taught me this stuff in school. And they're going to be learning alongside their teenager. Both learning at the same time. Not one teaching the other. Actually one teaching the other in both directions, but overall learning together. And when that happens, it's done. It's a 10 to 20 year exit cycle. It's already started. We're already a couple years into it. It is literally as if someone has flushed a giant toilet and the massive, massive, huge bureaucracy of public education is spiraling into the toilet. But it's a toilet the size of a black hole. And if you're up at the top of the rim, where you're slowly circling right now, you're circling so slowly that your perception is blurred, and you don't even know that that's what the movement means. You, there's a perception of movement sideways, but you cannot yet perceive of a movement down. But what happens when something's flushed? The apparent movement accelerates as you descend. So, like when you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, some I might have a little experience with. You jump out of an airplane, say a standard jump, 1,250 feet, bam, shoot opens. You look out, and you seem to be floating, not falling. And you slowly begin to see, you you register both drift and descent. You see it, you see it, and it's still very, very slow, very, very slow, very, very slow, very slow. And they teach you when you land, you put your feet and your knees together, and you'll live forever. They tell you that so many times, I still remember it today. There's a certain way that you fall, but you never pull your... When you're coming down, you put those feet together. They stay together. Because there's a desire, as you're looking down, take your feet apart, because you can see better. Your feet aren't your way now. Because your mind tells you, the descent is slow, the descent is slow, the descent is slow. And something happens. In about the last 20 feet of the descent, your speed remains constant. You're coming down at the same speed you have been from the very beginning. But every foot you go, your apparent speed increases almost by two times. So the last four or five feet, boom, it's almost like you're hit with an impact, like a truck hit you. The impact is actually equivalent to about the same as if you had jumped off a 10-foot platform. That's what you're training yourself to do when you go to airborne school. It's not these nice, pretty parachutes that the you know, the, the acrobatics use and they, you know, you can strap a chair to your ass and puff them up at the last second and slow down an air brake and land in a, in a lawn chair. I've seen that done. It takes a bit of skill, but it can be done. You're in a T-10 Charlie or a T-12 Bravo. You hit the ground, buddy. You're hitting the ground. Thud. And if you don't do it right, you got broken legs. Minimum. Okay? And that is what's happening to the public education sector right now. The the flush has already happened. The descent is already occurring. Just they're still sitting up at like 1,390 feet, and they can't see the speed at which they're coming down. If they did, they'd be shitting their pants. But if you're if you are outside of that, so now back to my parachute analogy. So you hit the ground, you pick up your parachute, you shove it in your bag, you get your shit together and you start 86 in the AO. You get your ass out of the way so somebody else doesn't land on top of you. And as you clear and you look back and you see your fellow paratroopers coming out of that plane, you see their speed of descent is being constant all the way to the ground. They never look like they speed up. That is what I see for education. Those who have exited the system who are standing on the outside and looking at the descent, see it at its real speed. Those inside it see it at a relative speed. that's so slow that at this point it's imperceptible. They've identified a threat in the free market, but they have no idea how en- engrossed the threat already is in their demise. And the threat is not really engrossed in their demise. The threat is engrossed in the improvement of the product they claim to hold sacred, education. But it's not education that the government holds sacred. It's control. It's control and it's institutionalization. It is making a person into what the government sees as a good citizen. And a good citizen works 40 hours a week or more, pays their taxes, does what they're told, doesn't question authority and always picks one side or the other of the dichotomy. They either become a consumer or a producer, and they don't care how you do it, but you must pick each segment the way they want it picked. And then you have to fulfill your role so that the state can continue to manipulate the entirety of society. It requires compartmentalization and stratification of classes. That's the, the hallmark of fascism, which is what this country is. is a fascist nation It's a neo-fascist nation, but we are a fascist nation. It's not about swastikas and concentration camps, right? That's something a fascist country did. This country is economically and politically and socially fascist, where the state and individual corporations work collectively together to further the agenda of each and see the state and the corporate apparatus as a mediator between the classes and feel that properly leveraged those differences between the classes can be used to further the agenda of the state and the corporate apparatus both. That is a textbook, college professor-level explanation of fascism as an economic and sociopolitical system. Okay? That is fascism. And they'll teach that in a university, and yet the student does not look out at their own society and go, that's where we live. And they go, oh, I get it, the Republicans are fascist. And the professor says, well done, young man or young lady. Now you are my equal, at least sort of. Here is your diploma. Go out and get a job from a Republican. But if you really want to value your life, get one from a Democrat. You'll have to do that most likely in the public sector. <sighs> Yay, us. USA, number two. That's right. We're now the second largest economy in the world. We are, we're not even number one as the largest economy anymore. USA can be number one once again. We can. We can do the magnificent things that it would seem that our destiny and our opportunity would indicate. But if we are to do it, we will not do it in the halls of government. We will do it in the hearts and minds of our citizenry. And for human beings to do truly great things, they must be free. The human being is not a cow. And it is not designed to be treated like a cow. It is not to be herded and milked. The human being is to be like, believe it or not, a pig. Cows actually seem to enjoy being milked. And if you give them good grass and move them around and reasonable freedom, they will stay put. They don't escape. They don't even really try. Cattle... Go feral by necessity, not intent. Take a pig. You start pasturing hogs. And you leave a crack that he can slip through one time. And he's out. And some of them will come back, almost trained like dogs. Because there's food there and what have you. But if they find something better, or at least just as good, a certain percentage of them leave and they never come back and they can be a pink spotted pig like you see at the state fair and in two or three generations their grandchildren will start to look like their wild prodigy this is a fact and there's over six million feral hogs in the state of Texas alone because given the opportunity for liberty the pig will take it and the cow will not I know it doesn't sound right but we need to be more like pigs than cows Not necessarily hogs. You know, pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, but pigs. We need to be seeking liberty. This is what I believe about the human being. The human being is designed and optimized for liberty and can only perform at its optimum level intellectually and morally when set free. We are going to have to set the next generation free to solve the problems we've created for them. I think by altering education. Is one way we can do just that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares.